If you have your Bibles, open it up to 1 Thessalonians. If you don't have a Bible, if you'd lift your hand up here also in the conference center, the ushers are coming down forward. They want to give you a copy. Uh, in that copy we're giving you, 1 Thessalonians is found on page one, uh, or 640, page 640. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. We're not going to go very far today. In fact, um, we're going to not get past the first word. But, um, but we won't go that pace the rest of the way through First Thessalonians. Just today, we felt it would be really important for us before we dig into uh, a letter to the church in Thessalonica to be talking about the apostle that wrote it. So we're going to talk about Paul and the uniqueness of him as a person and a, as an apostle. Um, but let's read. I think the first five or six verses help us see, uh, start to get a glimpse of Paul. And then we'll kind of spend the rest of our time this morning telling his story or God's story through him, as it were. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Th Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with the deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. Verse 6 talks about how they became imitators of them. There is an essence, like kind of <clears throat> through the words, there's a, a picture of Paul. There's a picture of Paul that there is a passionate, deeply convicted, hardworking, tough guy that is writing this passage, and he means what he says. He's kind of a black and white guy. So let me just take a couple of minutes and tell you about Paul, and then we'll talk about his testimony. Um, Paul, the apostle, wrote uh, some 13, possibly 14 of the New Testament books that we have. The, the Hebrews, I suppose, is debated, but it looks very similar to his writings. As far as we know, he is the ultimate church planner. He traveled more than all the other apostles and planted more churches that we know of than all the other apostles. He was ambitious. His background, he was born in Tarsus. Uh, he himself, in, in uh, Acts chapter 21, says that he's a citizen of no ordinary city. In other words, um, Tarsus was, uh, n was not small time. Tarsus was big time. Tarsus was the equivalent of an Athens or an Alexandria. It was, a, it was a city of culture, a city of art, a city of education. That's what it was known for. So it was a big time place that Paul was from. He was, uh, he was a Jew, but also a Roman citizen. And uh, his name changed from Saul to Paul after his first or during his first missionary journey in, in Acts chapter 13. Uh, probably after his bar mitzvah, when he was 12 or 13, uh, he left for Jerusalem to be trained by Gamamel, the, the greatest teacher of the day in Jerusalem. Now, there were different schools of thought, and, and these were uh, conservative thinkers that Paul was trained under. And so uh, he was... Greek and a very educated man, educated by a Greek and very educated. Um, Saul was a Jew, was zealous, passionate. Um, we know that because of his reputation as a persecutor for things he thought were wrong, specifically Messiah, Jesus. And uh, he shows up in our story in, in the early part of Acts, Acts chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9, specifically when Stephen is preaching. And uh, Saul is there holding the garments of those who are killing Stephen and giving hearty approval to the death. That's Paul. Passionate, tough, black and white guy. In fact, um, Paul's memory of his past uh, had him work hard all the time. He was a hard worker, but specifically for the gospel. He says this in 1 Corinthians of himself, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. That, in essence, was the person of Paul. Passionate, zealous, um, maybe argumentative, black and white. 
Um, I don't know if you watch um, the NFL channel. Anybody watch the NFL channel? I'm going to use an analogy here. It, it might be weak, but don't, don't be mad at me, okay? So on Thursday nights, they have this show called A Football Life. And it's basically a documentary on a particular old football player that, that um, they want us to know about. Uh, last Thursday, they profiled Mike Ditka. And you guys know who Mike Ditka was, right? He was a great uh, tight end for the Bears and then for Philadelphia and then the ultimate the Cowboys and a coach of the Bears, what everybody knows him for. But I sat there watching him and go, man, that reminds me of Paul. Hard-nosed, aggressive, passionate, black and white, defending what he believes is to be true, and he never quits. I don't know how old he is, like 800, and he's still the same guy. He's still the same guy he was back in the 60s when he played, and now, and now he's, he's that kind of guy. So cut me some slack. If you want a mental picture of the kind of demeanor Paul had, just put on the Mike Ditka thought and go, he was that kind of a guy, aggressive and strong and believed what he said. Um, it was the character, abilities, qualities, and personality of Paul that God used to plant this, this thing called Christianity, this church. And I, get, I, I stopped when I was thinking about Paul, and I wondered how many times uh, we make the mistake of thinking that what God converts is our personality. Like we get saved, and clearly we don't like us that much, and he must not like us that much. And so one of the things he's going to do over time is change us from who we are into somebody that's more likable or more usable. Well, that's not true. God formed you. He knows you. Your personality is not by mistake. It's, it's God-given, and God wants to use it. So in, in Paul's life, what made him a great zealot for persecuting the church also made him a great church planner and gospel defender. Do you see? Now, remember when I was growing up, I grew up in a church home. My dad was a uh, kind of a non-committed, non-denominational, Baptist-leaning pastor, okay? You got that in your mind? Whatever that was, you get that? He was a hellfire brimstone, I mean, kind of a guy. Like, he could, he could break this, this pulpit. He meant what he said and, and defended it. He was, he was really strong that way. And he was convinced that God gave me the wrong personality. Um, because I wasn't very helpful to ministry. Uh, I wasn't like, and I've said this before, and you got to believe me, I know it's hard to believe, but I, I, I didn't, I wasn't a party, I wasn't, I wasn't like gory, sinful, right? I was crazy. Do you know the difference? Just, I was, before there was a diagnosis of ADD, I'm clear, I'm, I, I suppose I would have been a, a clear case for it. But I was crazy all the time and always moving and everything else. And my dad was convinced that if I just changed who I was, it'd be better for him. And so uh, I remember a couple times, and this was ongoing. And, and by the way, I love my dad. I never had a problem with it. It's a different era. I don't have bad thoughts about my pop. But we were sitting in church, and, I, you know, I have a hard time sitting still. I mean, he preaches a long time, right? So um, he would stop the service to deal with me. <laughs> so we, it'd be, you know, they weren't giant congregations. It's like we've got 1,000 people listening to me right now. It was never that big, but 200 or so. And I would be maybe busy back there doing something. He'd go, Tim, right in the middle of the service, come up here. And so, I know you guys are panicked. Like, you're wondering how, how scarred I might be. I, I'm not. So, he would, he would set a chair next to the pulpit. And he would sit me in the chair facing the audience while he finished the sermon. And it didn't bother me. I thought it was kind of a hoot. I would just sit there and make faces at people. And it, wasn't, it didn't accomplish what he was hoping that it would. Um, but he wanted to know, he wanted them to know, the people to know, he was in control of me, and my personality was a little off the hook for him, so he was always working on me. And when he said amen, when the N came out of his mouth, because the parsonage, the church that we lived in was right next to the church, I was gone. Like, I was a vapor trail. And, I, and the only thing I ever wore in those days was a pair of cutoffs. I didn't wear shoes, I never wore a shirt, I was just wild, okay? And I ran home, and I would get into my cutoffs, and I'd walk right back to church, because all my friends were at church. And I'd be standing in the, in the chapel when my dad is, you know, doing the Baptist, you know, pastor shake. And he would see me there. And it would drive him crazy. He, and then we'd have a, a long talk with the belt later. But <laughs> what I'm saying is very simple. Paul um, might not be your cup of tea as a person. Personality-wise, he was driven. 
He was a church planner, entrepreneurial. He was, he was aggressive. He was defensive. He was, uh, you know the story of him and John Mark. He, had, he wanted nothing to do with that guy because he wasn't strong enough. Um, Paul was a tough guy, and God decided to use him. Now, he softened in areas, um, but he, stopped, he never stopped being him. And so just a reminder to us as Christians, um, God is into using who he's made you to be for his glory and his kingdom. So if you've been hard, working hard at trying to file your own edges, let God do that. Just be who you are and uh, watch what God will do with it. So that's just a side note to uh, the big topic of who Paul is. Uh, for years, I've tried to help people understand a simple form of communicating God's story. So how many of you were here on Sunday for the outdoor services? If you weren't there, you should feel terrible because it was awesome. Uh, we had baptisms outside. And what was great about that was um, just the picture. I forget the picture, you know? The picture of, of a spiritual reality that has taken place in a life. When people go under the water represents the death that God found us in. And coming out of the water represents the new life that Jesus raised us in. And 40-some baptisms, just one after another, of people saying, this is what God did. This is what God did. And I was kind of stuck between the speakers, but I was watching you guys watch it. And it moved me just even on a ricochet. I was watching it going, wow, this is awesome. I wish I could see it. I watched a few of the videos this week, and it impressed me that the story of God in us, simple sinners, is an amazing story. And there's three parts to every testimony, at least the ones we need to be ready to tell. One is, where did God find you? What was your life like before you met Jesus? What did you come to believe in, and how has God changed your life? That those answers to those questions need to be on the lips of every believer, ready to tell the story. This is who I was. This is what I know. This is how God changed me, right? We're going to use that outline to define Paul. We're going to use that outline to tell the story of Paul, um, his conversion story. In fact, if you get in the book of Acts, and we'll spend most of our time in Acts today, uh, Luke, the writer, mentions Paul's testimony three times. And I, I'm speculating a little bit, but my assumptions are that at least one of the major reasons why it's mentioned so many times is because the, the reality of that amazing story of God taking a Jesus-hater, church persecutor, and making them into the biggest proponent for the gospel and grace is a powerful proof of the truth of the gospel. And so it's mentioned over and over again in the, in the story of Acts and so here we are looking at Paul's life, the testimony with these three simple points. Where was he before Christ? Um, we've already talked about this, but we know he was a Pharisee. He was responsible for persecution of the church. Um, in fact, in, fact in, in Acts chapter 26, let me read to you from, from Paul's own um, words what he was like so you can kind of get that in your mind. In uh, chapter 26, verses 9 through 11, he goes, I, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme in my obsession against them. I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. So do you feel like you got a good mental like before Jesus picture of Paul, aggressive, uh, passionate, zealous persecutor. That's, that's who Paul was. Um, he was relentless. In his mind, he was doing God a favor. In his mind, he was trying to purify God's people from heresy. That's not true. He's not the Messiah. That's not, that's not it because God gave us the law. So here's, here's the experience of what happened. What Paul, what Paul was like before. I want you to go to Acts chapter 9. We'll spend most of our time kind of hovering around this conversion story in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, just starting in the very beginning of the chapter, in verse 1. Meanwhile, again, this is, this is Saul's conversion. Meanwhile... Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus that he, may, he found, if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might make, take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Paul was, 
in a zone. Paul was doing his job. Paul was on a mission to eliminate these liars in his mind. So he went and got these letters to go to Damascus. Damascus was a city like 140 miles north. He's on a road on his way there. And and there's just a couple of things between the lines in those first two verses I want to kind of make you aware of. The first one about Paul's story is Paul or Saul thought he was doing okay. In this part of his life, there wasn't any thought that he needed something else. There wasn't any um, expression of, I'm missing something, or they might be right. He was absolutely convinced he was doing God favors by eliminating the liars and eliminating the heresy and persecuting and even killing those who claim Jesus as Lord and Savior. He thought he was doing okay. He believed God was pleased with him. He probably experienced the attaboys and the backslaps of all of his zealous, you know, Hebrew friends. Ah, get him, Paul. But the reality was, he wasn't. Let me, let me tell you, don't, don't turn there. We'll turn to this passage a little bit later. But let me read from, again, Paul's own mouth of how good he thought he was. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says this. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. I don't think Paul's exaggerating. Whatever a man-made, law-based, no-God, no-grace system can do, Paul says, I grabbed it around the throat and I made it mine. That's who I was. That I was okay. Religion was working for me. I had, I had everybody's backing. I was a leader on the rise. I was pushing back against the lies. That's who I was. And that's where Paul is found by Christ. So let's stop and take a little uh, a bit of personal inventory, okay? Every time we get in a narrative, we have to ask a couple things. One is, what does it say about us? Two, what does it say about God? Because these stories of people and God never change. God never changes. And man's need, man's nature, man's sin, man's expressions are typical. They're, they're ongoing all the time. So we can learn some things here. But I, I think it's safe to say that most people feel like they're living their lives pretty well. Especially in a church. Especially on a Sunday morning at 10 or 11 o'clock now. We got up at the right time, we drove down here, we're sitting quiet, we stood in the worship, we're doing okay, right? We're doing okay. We might even be nice to one another before we leave today. And on the way out, we might notice that offering box and scribble a little check and drop it in. We might give some, some money to this thing. We're, we're, we're kind of doing okay. We got good kids, at least for the most part. Um, we're pretty decent. It's possible that you're here today feeling pretty good about your spiritual life, just like Saul did. And I'm going to confess something. It's pretty common. And I'm going to confess this, and this this might bother you, but the hardest person to minister to is the person that's pretty good. The easy one are the train wrecks. If those doors opened up and all the crippled, wounded, self-perpetuating herders of themselves walked in here, they wouldn't put up a fight about their sin. They wouldn't say that they're okay. They wouldn't say they had no needs. They declare they have a need. Now, whether God moved in the heart or not is, is God's issue. What's really, really hard is to have good people recognize their inability and their need for a Savior. I'm, I'm okay. I'm raising good kids. I'm paying my taxes. I'm nice to people. I, I give a little bit. I actually serve in children's ministry. I'm okay. You can feel okay. Paul was religious, better than you'll ever be, and he thought he was okay. So as we go through today, would you at least allow the Holy Spirit to look at you, look at your soul? And if you're one of, their, one of those folks sitting in the, in the chairs today going, I think I'm okay, would you just let the Holy Spirit push? Maybe he'll confirm that you're okay because of grace. Maybe he'll look at you and say, you know what, that religion... It's different, it it looks different than Paul's, but it's still the same ugly mess to me. Maybe that's what you'll look at today. Either way, Paul thought he was doing okay. Secondly, I want you to see kind of between the lines of those two verses, or actually verses three and four, that Saul was actually not okay. He was fighting against God. He was doing the exact opposite of what he thought he was doing. Look at verses three and four. 
As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Jesus' words now, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul was fighting against the Lord. That's kind of the way it is for everybody who resists the gospel. God's provision of salvation through one way and one way only, Jesus. Most people aren't like Paul as far as bold or hostile. We don't have dead bodies laying around to prove those things. We only have indifference and apathy. We struggle to care. You know? Most people wouldn't say, I'm an active, ongoing, card-carrying enemy of God. I wake up looking to destroy him and his purposes every day. Most people are just going to, eh, whatever. Especially for, for those of you who are listening to me right now and you know you're not a Christian. You're here because somebody invited you. You're here because God and his sovereignty brought you here. Whatever the story is, but you're saying of yourself, I don't follow Jesus, but I'm not an enemy of God. That's not true. Remember that old Doobie Brothers song? This is really going back, so you're going to have to reach, reach. Jesus is just all right with me. Remember that song? A lot of people feel that way about Jesus. He's just okay. We're okay. I mean, I wouldn't say I follow him or anything. I wouldn't say I'm a Christian. I mean, as far as you're defining it. But I'm not mad at him. I'm not an enemy of God. See, I'm absolutely convinced that was Paul's thinking. I'm okay. But Jesus shows up and says, hey, hey, Paul, before you head off to Damascus, let me just tell you the story, the true story. We're not okay. Because you think you're about promoting God, and I'm telling you you're standing at odds with God. We're at war with each other. And that's true. Anyone who ignores the salvation of God alone stands against the Lord. And that's what Jesus was telling Saul here. So that's where, that's where God found this persecutor religious zealot. Just kind of continuing to do his duty like a good soldier. He interrupts and says, hey, by the way, there's a problem here. And then begins the learn curve for Paul. He has to go through that process of what does he come to, to learn? What does he come to believe in? Look at verses 3 through 9 again. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, and when he had opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand to Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat. Anything. God had done a miracle right there. Kind of a weird t- play on words. Paul, walking with sight, was blind in his heart. God made him blind in his eyes and made him see in his heart. Do you see the weird change that took place for Paul there? And I think there's some truths you need to see in his story here. One is that Saul was not on a mission to find Jesus, he wasn't looking for God, he thought he had God. He thought he had salvation by works and by law. It was just the opposite. He was seeking to destroy the whole message of grace. He was trying to sell, work your way, like me, because I'm faultless. You want to talk about religion, I'm faultless. Be like me. Saul was not seeking salvation. God was seeking Saul. That's the reality. That's what's in this story. God is the initiator of this drama. He always is, in our stories too, right? I was, again, born into a Christian home. What, a, what an advantage. Every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, and everywhere in between, whatever they decided to do, I was there. I was there. You would think just by, just by proximity, some of the gospel would have landed on me. Just somewhere would have got to me. I had Bibles stacked up in the closet from memorizing Scripture. They would give them away as prizes. 1981, I was in a relationship with a girl, and I don't have gory, like, I don't have a lot of gory tales. I didn't do drugs. I always thought people with addictions were weak. That's me, okay? And I always felt like I'm not going to do that. I just hunkered down and didn't do it. But when this girl came and sin came, first time in my life, I felt weight. First, first time in my life, I 
knew I had sinned against God. I didn't know what to do with it. You would think I'd have an easy answer. I've memorized the verses. The Bible's in the closet. I've sat in church my whole life. Just, just answer the question, what do you do with your sin? I couldn't. I was overwhelmed and crushed. And now when, when the psalmist writes about how God was crushing his bones, like a word picture to describe what it's like on the inside when sin is bigger than we can deal with. I remember going, I don't know what to do. So I went to my brother, uh, my brother Gary. And it wasn't that he was any sharper than I was, um, but it's true of all counsel. When, you're not, when somebody's not in your story, they can speak wisdom to you because they see it clearer than you do. And I said, here's what I did. What do I do now? And he said, I'll pray about it. And he went away and he came back. Here's what you do. You're going to think this is like unbelievably, unbelievably awesome. He said, repent. <laughs> I'm not even certain I knew what that word meant, to be honest with you. He said, stop it, leave it, pursue Jesus. And I did. And I'm telling you, folks, as much as God allowed me to carry the weight of my choices, he liberated me by repentance. Lights came on in 1981. Everything changed. As much as I was a crazy, passionate guy about stupid stuff, God lit me on fire just the same way for him. I couldn't read enough. I wanted to be in ministry. I, I, I was confessing my sin and loving other people and telling the story of the gospel for one reason, because I went from darkness to light in 1981, and I had church all over me. I had, I had everything you would think a person would need to be okay. So God initiated the drama for Paul. He initiates your drama, doesn't he? Somewhere, somewhere in your story, you know that God found you in a, either a position of war or up, you know, being stubborn or failure or weakness or whatever. He introduces, like, grace through Christ. Just like he does for Paul here, God being the initiator. And it's true for all of us. We're not smart enough, good enough, or alive enough to seek God. Because the Bible says no one seeks him. The only way you can get to the Father is if he draws you. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. That's one truth kind of hidden in those verses 3 through 9. But another one is this, that Paul was confronted by his sin. Jesus says, you are against me. You're persecuting me. The Paul story is told, again, two more times in the book of Acts uh, chapter 22 and 26, but in chapter 26, we know that the bright light uh, showed up there. It blinded Paul. There's a voice from heaven that says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then Jesus says this, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. You remember that phrase? I, I asked our resident Hebrew scholar, uh, he, uh, Neil, today, I said, do you know what it means to kick against the goads? He goes, I have no idea. So I got one on him. I'm about to tell you what it is to kick against the goads. A goad was a sharpened rod or staff, and it was used to train animals, like, like labor animals, so ox or, or horses or whatever. So when you would, when you team them up or put them behind a, or in front of a wagon or a plow or whatever, if they didn't like it and it was new to them, they would kick and make a fuss, right? Well, you would stick this goad rod behind their hooves. And if they kicked, they'd get stabbed in the, stabbed in the hoof. And they'd soon, soon learn by failure and pain, that's stupid, I'm not doing this, I'll just walk straight. Get it? Well, Jesus shows up to Paul and says, you're persecuting me and you're having no success. You're kicking against the goads, Saul. They're not going to relinquish their faith in Jesus. They're not going to give up this thing that they didn't earn. This grace that God poured out on them through the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit to transform them from death to life is not of themselves. You can threaten their lives. You can take them to court. You can kill them and stone them. They're not going to tap out because it's not man-made. Saul, you're banging your head against a brick wall. You get it? Paul, you can't see it that way. Unbelievable unsuccess, however you want to call it. They won't recant they won't blaspheme. They won't turn from Jesus because Jesus was given to them. So Jesus confronts Paul in his own stubbornness and his sin. And I want you to think for just a second. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Paul, the kind of schizophrenia that was existing in his mind? One whole life of his was absolutely convinced that his efforts merited God's attention and favor suddenly to find out that God himself is saying, no, no, no. 
you've been at war with me. You've been persecuting me. You're not in, you're out. Can you imagine like the horror of that? Like, are you kidding me? Saul was a passionate Pharisee. He wasn't serving the Lord. He was attacking him. It had to be devastating. And Saul needed to see it. Just like every one of us need to see it. Here's the, here's the good news. The good news is that Jesus saves sinners. But the good news has this front clause that is kind of bad news that is the only way to get the good news. You're a sinner far worse than you ever feared and there's nothing you can do. That's the front half of the good news. Because if the good news that Jesus saves doesn't have that you can't, then guess what men do? Guess what we do on our own, in our flesh? We'll work for it. We'll feel better about ourselves than we should. We'll add a little bit of us to the Jesus equation, and ultimately God owes us something. And we know the conclusion of that. The math works out this way. Add anything to Jesus, you lose it all. So the only way you can come, the only way Paul could come, is to recognize, I have wasted my whole life. Did you get it? Man-made effort won't do it. Religion won't do it. Trying won't do it. Knowing won't do it. Like this mental ascent, there's a huge distance. It's only four inches by math, but it's cataclysmic in the kingdom. The difference between ascent and belief separates men forever. Because you might hear me going, I, I don't have a problem with Jesus. I don't have a problem with God. I don't have a problem with the cross. But you don't believe. And you go on your own. You assume that your efforts, you assume that your attendance, you assume something is good enough for God to be pleased with you. You don't get the bad news of the good news. And the bad news is that your efforts don't merit anything but judgment. Because God's standard is holiness. And if you're not holy, justice is the result. Unless... God takes his own justice for our sin. By faith in Jesus alone, by faith alone, God will turn that wrath that is deserved on our sin and pour it out on Jesus and then take the righteousness of Christ and cover us. That's our only hope. And Saul had to come to the conclusion that the bad news applied to him. Romans 3, Paul said, all have sinned. What do you think it was like for a religious faultless Pharisee to say that applies to me. Even though it was my, it probably shook him to the knees, it set him free because at the end of that, there's Jesus. We know that Isaiah 64 says our righteous deeds, the best that we can offer is filthy rags to God. There's another thing that Paul learned and we're gonna have to jump into another passage um, in Philippians chapter three. I read some of it to you but if you're turning in the Bible we gave you, it's, it's page 637. Philippians chapter 3, Paul is talking about no confidence in him. Where you see the beginning of the passage we're going to read, and you know, look, he thinks, he thinks all that former effort could do something only to tell us the truth. Here's, here's the reality of, of what Paul came to believe, and I'm going to give it to you ahead of time. Paul came to believe as much passion as he believed anything in his life that Jesus was his only hope and Jesus was his treasure. Look at it again with me in, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, verse uh, 3. For if it was we who are, are the circumcised, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in flesh, I have more. Circumcised in the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Now here's the good news. Listen. But whatever was to my prophet, I now consider loss. The word is really interpreted dung. 
I consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Do you get Paul's treasure? What did he come to realize? I got a problem Jesus is my solution, and he's my treasure. He's all that I want. He's all that I need. There isn't anything else. Church, that has to come from God. We're not smart enough or good enough to go, well, that's better. God has to turn the lights on us and show us our inabilities and our sins to then provide for us the joy of Jesus. So, do you treasure him? I got it. I got it. It's a fight. And depending on the moment or the day, you will answer that differently. Do you treasure him? Like when when all the distractions are removed and you're thinking clearly, do you treasure Jesus above all else? Because that's what Paul had to come to realize. That's what he came to believe. Amazing story. Pharisee, zealous, religious, faultless, church persecutor at war with God. God intervenes and shows him his inability then provides the unbelievable surmounting greatness of Jesus. And that's what he comes to believe in. How is he changed? Go back to Acts chapter 9, if you would. Verses 20 to 22. You see almost what appears to be an immediate change in Paul. In his message, He spent a couple of days in Damascus with the apostles and at once, in verse 20, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. That's an amazing story. Can you imagine all of his buddies who thought he was a hero to go and persecute Christians and destroy that thing called the church and to to build up his own man-made righteousness. He's our hero. He's our, he's our champion only to show up in the synagogue and suddenly the guy who was trying to kill off the Messiah lovers, he was speaking of the Messiah. It's an amazing change. Immediately, I, I, was, talking to, I was talking to Neil this morning. He goes, it's, you know what it's like? It's like LeBron James putting on a heat jersey going back to Cleveland. If you're a basketball Fan, you know what I mean. LeBron is a player in Cleveland. Cleveland thought, hung their hopes on him. He left and went to Miami. And when he showed back up at Cleveland, he was a traitor. Didn't believe anything he said. He's still not liked. To have Paul, the zealot church persecutor, show up and now say, no, 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 it's true. It's true. Jesus is real and he's alive and he's alive in me and he's everything. And put your faith and trust in him. And it's not by law. All those efforts, waste your time. Take grace. It's free. It's scandalous, right? It's absurd, and that's what he did. Think about the change. The man who killed Christians had now become one. The man who sought to wipe out Christianity is now promoting it. The man who had persecuted others for following Christ is now being persecuted for his following of Christ. The man who attacked the church became its chief defender. The man who was filled with so much hate was now transformed to show his love through the gospel of Jesus Christ to sinners like him. The man who trusted the law for salvation put no hope in man again and trusted in grace. So what did it cost him? Power and prestige. In his position as rabbi, he could have made a really good income. He gave that up. He was no longer welcomed by his friends or in cities or in places. He gave up comforts and safety. He was dogged everywhere he went for the rest of his life until he was killed for saying these things. That's Paul. Church, I got one thing to say to you right now. Jesus is in the change business. You should be able to say, and I'm a story too. He changed me. Because this is what I was and this is what he's done. Maybe not as drastic as Paul. Maybe, maybe, not, as, maybe not as in total uh, clear depiction as Paul. But over time, now you're looking at your life and going, I was this and look what he did. Look what he did. Jesus is in the change business. So, just to remind you, 
maybe to bring a little conviction too, the unchanged Christian is a spiritual impossibility. If you're claiming faith in Christ and you see no evidence of Christ in you, you better start asking tough questions because he changes people. There's good, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, not to perfection. Not were you ever able to say about your faith in Christ that it's faultless, like Paul said about his, his Jewish beliefs, but a growing change. Hating sin like God hates sin. Repenting like 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11. A godly sorrow over sin. Things that change. So, so I've got a list of so what's that you can leave here with today. Here's the first one from Paul's story that we can take away. God is the pursuer, not the other way around. God came on a rescue mission for you. If you're a Christian, you know it's true. It doesn't matter what you, what you define your experience as, God was sovereign over those stories. The unbeliever, biblically, is not seeking God. God is seeking them. No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. Jesus came to seek and save the lost the lost who didn't know they were lost. So, sometimes we talk in different terms, like we're on this, this spiritual pilgrimage and the end of it is gonna be Jesus. And it, it's not true unless God moves. It'll just lead to more darkness. Another, another answer that's no answer at all. Unless God moves, it won't happen. God is the initiator of our relationship. He's the one who sovereignly puts people in your way to tell the story of Jesus. He's the one that brings and allows tragedy in your life to bring you to a broken position to go, what's the answer? Because life isn't the answer. God is sovereign over that. God is sovereign over pulling at your heart. He could be pulling at your heart right now. I pray, I pray that somewhere in this room or the conference center right now, there's somebody in here who knows by their own declaration they're not in the kingdom of God. They haven't put their faith and trust in Christ alone. Maybe, maybe God is using the absurdity of these words to yank on your heart because that's how he does it. He interrupts whenever he does, however he will, unique time and place, and he says, now's the time. Hey, Saul, I know you're busy on the road up here to, to kind of wipe out the church, let me interrupt you with grace. Maybe you're sitting here and, and you thought you would just have a great little Monday, uh, Sunday meeting before you had a great lunch and some good football. And God interrupted. He said, let me interrupt you with some grace. Here's what you do. It's not complicated. It's, it's almost too simple to, to be, be believable. But you just simply call your sin what God calls it. That's called confession. You just agree with God about what your problem is. Don't deny it. Don't call it something else. Don't blame it on anybody else. Say, I'm a sinner, and I've offended you. I call it what you call it, God, and leave it. Say, I want Jesus and no other. He's my treasure. Say what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. I want to know Christ. I want to know Jesus. I consider everything else rubbish but Jesus. You come in repentance and faith and he will receive you and you will get what you can't get anywhere else. Forgiveness of sins and grace to live. That's the truth. So I want to invite you, if you are uh, on the outside looking in, if that would be your own description of your condition, come to him. There's a second so what you can learn from Paul's life. Never write off anybody. You know, I suppose if there was a top 10 list of people that Jesus couldn't touch, maybe, maybe Paul would end up on that list. I mean, come on, he's killing. He's absolutely taken out a target on Jesus. He's trying to wipe the name off the planet. He doesn't deserve grace, does he? God gives it to him. Sometimes we think in our minds, you know, the worst type of offenders. You know, the drug dealers and the prostitutes and the murderers and the thieves. And, and God saves those folks. I hear stories all the time about guys in prison who come to their senses under the weight of their sin but I don't even think that's strong enough for you. I, I would ask you Christians to stop for a second and, and eliminate all other illustrations but your own story. That's enough, right? Because here's what I know. You know you and God knows you and you're probably sitting there going, I can't believe it, right? If you're honest about your sin and inability, you're, you should be saying, I can't believe grace got to me. I know what I think about. I know what I've done. I know what I've tried to keep secret. I know all this stuff. God, you know that stuff, and yet you gave Jesus for me. Your story is enough of a miracle story. 
Amen, church? It's true. And so if you're, if you're in your life right now praying for a child, a son, a daughter, a husband, a wife, a, a co-worker, a neighbor, or somebody, and they're the, they're the last person you would ever believe God would reach, don't write anybody off. Pray hard. Because God's grace is irresistible. His power is unbelievable, right? And your sin, your resistance is nothing to God's move in your life. So pray hard. Pray believing for those folks. A couple other things. I want you to remember that Paul um, is a sinner just like us. Sometimes when we tell stories of the champions in Scripture, we make them super saints. And we give ourselves a pass and go, well, that's Paul. I'm not Paul. That's why I've always enjoyed studying the failures of Scripture than the the winners because it makes me feel a little better about myself. But I want to remind you that Paul was a struggler too. Romans chapter 7, talking about a struggle with sin, Paul says these things, and you've heard them before. I don't get me. The very thing I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. And the thing that, that, that I want to do, I can't seem to get done. And his conclusion is, this is a problem. Who's going to rescue me from this condition? He only has one answer. Praise be to our God and Father through Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins. There is only one hope for that perpetual struggling. I'm going to use another illustration. It's, it, and, and again, it's not like explicit. I think it's implied. But Paul in 2 Corinthians um, is, is dealing with this. He's telling his story, but he's doing it covertly. He's talking about an experience where God allowed him to see heaven. And he says, I don't know if I was in the spirit or if I was in the body in the spirit. I, I don't know. I don't know. But he talks about it in the third person like it's not him. And he says it in order to say, listen, um, it's, it's amazing, but, uh, but I have no confidence in the flesh. Like if I was telling these stories and put my name on it, you would think that I have, you know, I've been there, I've done that. Like I have some confidence, but I have none in me. And he goes on to talk about this thorn in the flesh, right? That, that God is showing off in our lives, in his life, in our weakness. Do you remember that passage? And Paul has this thorn, he calls it. And he says he prays three times that God would remove it, and God doesn't. And then what does he say? My grace is sufficient. I, I want to I uh, just suggest something. And I, I, I suggest it lightly. Don't, don't write me and uh, don't jump on me. But I want to suggest some things that, that might be interesting about Paul's story. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11... Uh, Paul talks about what he's been through following Christ. And I want to suggest to you that I think Paul's thorn in the flesh might have been some struggle. I don't think the Apostle Paul, when I get done reading this, you might agree with me, um, because I've heard a couple, couple people talk about the fact that he might have had bad eyesight and he was praying that God would give him his vision back, or, or that there was some guy in this church in Corinth that was just making ministry really, really hard. And those are the things he prayed against. This is, this is the guy that we're talking about. 2 Corinthians 11. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in my city, in danger in the country, danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked besides everything else. I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. I can't imagine this guy whining about eyesight or having one particular brother or unbeliever in the church going, you know, this is making ministry really hard. I think the thing that would bother Paul more than anything else, and tell me you don't have these moments too, is some struggle that he was absolutely convinced that if God would move it out of the way, bigger things would happen. I said this last hour, and I had, I mean, I was looking at people's faces, and they're going, yeah. Haven't you ever prayed that prayer? Church, haven't you ever said, God, listen, I love you, I really, really do, but this particular struggle of mine, it's got to go. I, I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want it. I, if you'd move it away, look, look what I think could happen. Have you not ever prayed those prayers? Shake your head. Have you not ever prayed your prayers? Yes, you have. And here's all you have left. 
when you're all said and done, if God doesn't miraculously remove them, you have grace. Just like Paul. Just like Paul. Because in your inability, he is more than able. Amen? And it shows him off more. I don't know why God doesn't miraculously remove all temptation from us. I don't know why he doesn't take particular bents of sin away from his people so that they can just now be a better example. Somehow he uses strugglers. Every time Paul talks about walking the walk of faith, he talks about it in terms of boxing, running, or work. The Christian life is uphill both ways, fighting every step. So the reality of this lesson we learn here is you look at Paul and you go, wow, he's a, he might be really something special. Maybe, maybe he was just a guy who believed. Maybe God called him, set him aside, said, I'm going to use you, but you're going to have your issues. He talked about his own issues in Romans 7, and God did amazing things. I want you to be encouraged not by the fact that you share in struggle. You share in God's solution, grace. Grace and power to the Holy Spirit to say no to sin and ungodliness, to repent of your failures when they happen and get up and keep walking because you don't know him and live in him based on you. Amen, church? One last, so what? One last, tell the story. First thing Paul did, he spent some time there in Damascus and he walked right into the synagogue, right into enemy territory to tell them, listen, I used to play on your team, but I don't anymore because of Jesus. I think if you were to really be, if we were going to be honest, I think the church struggles in telling the story of God. I think we're convinced that it's for professionals, that, you know, people who are really smooth in speech, you've got it figured out, they're the ones who do it. Or we give ourselves a pass because of fear, we're convinced we don't know enough. Like I couldn't say it good enough, don't we? And the reality of it is you've heard, you've heard us say this before. If you know enough to believe the gospel that saves, you know enough to share it. You do. You can't hide behind fear. And if we're really going to be a gospel-centered, outward-focused church, then the reality of us replicating the storytelling has to happen. Your story is a miracle, just like Paul's story is a miracle. Grace is an unbelievable, unbelievable reality that most people don't know. And we get to tell that story. Amen? Let's pray together. We look at a, Paul, a life like Paul's, and God, we're uh, sometimes intimidated by um, the miracles you did around him and with him and in him. Sometimes we see the, um, the truth that he knew and communicated and defended, and we look at our kind of puny lives, and we wonder if we have anything to offer. God, I, I confess that sometimes it's, struggle, it's a struggle for me too, but I pray for our church that, God, you would have us believe the gospel at such deep parts of our being that we shun human man-made effort and we cling to the cross of Christ. I pray that he would be our treasure. I pray that we would tell the story to others who are outside the kingdom looking in. God, we thank you for, for what we learn through a guy like Paul, and as we get ready to discover this book, I pray, God, that you help us um, discover you even more, love you more. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.